You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. Good morning, friends. Glad you guys are here. It's good to see your faces. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. You all were thinking it. Yeah? One of our culture's greatest one-hit wonders, right? Hadaway. You probably didn't know the artist's name. His name is Hadaway. They wrote that song. That song was written and sung back in 1993, 30 years ago. But it still has retained cultural power. And embedded in the midst of undeniably catchy synthesizers that will make you just start bobbing your head involuntarily, those three short words have actually captured, I think, a collective questioning of our whole world. So many of us, right alongside Hathaway, have asked or asked the same question, what is love? And if we're being honest with ourselves, I think most of us would say we don't really have a concise answer to that question. Most of us don't have a robust definition of what love looks like at all. We love the idea of love, for sure. I mean, look at all of our cultural artifacts that express love, right? Love at first sight, love islands, crazy stupid love, love and other drugs, love actually, love on the spectrum, Shakespeare in love, love story, love is love. We love love. But that proliferation of speech about love has not given us more clarity on what it really means or looks like. In fact, oftentimes it's led us to radically misunderstand uh, recently, there's a Harvard scholar and rabbi named David Wolpe who examined this dynamic. He wrote an article for Time magazine, and the article is entitled, We Are Defining Love the Wrong Way. He said this, It is time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. After years spent speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and of talking to parents and children struggling with their relationships, I am convinced of the partiality of that definition. Love should not be seen as a feeling, but as an enacted emotion. To love is to feel and act lovingly. Too many women have told me bruises visible on their faces that the husbands who struck them love them. Since they see love as a feeling, the word hides the truth, which is that you do not love someone whom you repeatedly beat and abuse. You may have very strong feelings about them. You may even believe that you cannot live without them, but you do not love them. Friends, for as much as we throw the word love around in our culture, many of us carry a counterfeit view of it. We define it as a cozy feeling or as uncritical support of someone or something or as something you can kind of fall into and fall out of, like another emotion. And those counterfeits are no small things because the way we define love ultimately shapes every part of our human existence. How we define love determines how we interact in every one of our most important relationships. How we define love is a central factor in how we form our personal identities. How we define love gives us uh, the right ways in which to move socially, uh, culturally, vocationally in the world. And most importantly, how we define love is the catalyst for living a life of spiritual wholeness with God and others. It's not an accident that the Bible mentions love more than 300 times. It's not an accident that when Jesus is pressed on the most important commandment, what does he say? Love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. It's not an accident that in Paul's famous chapter on love, he closes it by saying, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The way we experience and define love shapes every part of who we are, which means one of the greatest challenges we will face in our lives is naming and understanding the counterfeit versions and resisting them in our world. The great need in our time is not just for people who are better educated or people who are more gifted. The great need in our time is for people who have encountered true love and embody that love to the world. We're continuing in our Advent teaching series here at Midtown entitled Defiant. Uh, each week we've been examining a different promise from the prophet Isaiah regarding the coming of the Messiah into the world. And each of these promises have shown us the different ways that God is defying the darkness of our world and our experiences and is creating defiant sorts of people who can enter into the darkness of our world with radically different ways of being, in hope, in peace, in joy. And today, in conjunction with uh, the beautiful reading that Martha and Brittany gave us, uh, we're going to explore one of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures in Isaiah 61. And it's here that we find the radical definition of God's defiant love. God's defiant love coming into the world and how that love utterly transforms us and the world around us. So friends, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah is in the backs of your Old Testament, if you're flipping there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, the words will be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. I will get you one. Free book on me. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall glory. Because their shame was double and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot, therefore they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, 
and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the the people to whom this text was written are a people well acquainted with grief. They're the people of Judah. They are in the southern half of what was formerly the united nation of Israel. Israel is now in the north and Judah is in the south. And these people, well, they've been through it over the last few years. Leader after leader have produced continual injustice and corruption. They've seen the poor and marginalized only further isolated in their midst. And they've seen their entire culture chasing after gods of sex and wealth and power and the rest. Because that sort of thing happened back then. Not so much today. And then, as the cherry on top, their capital city, Jerusalem, this hub through which they thought that God was going to bring life and restoration for all things, it was utterly ravaged and destroyed by a big, bad empire called Babylon. And part of Babylon's strategy, to really make sure that this nation was split apart, they exiled them all around the ancient Near East. They were severed from their identities. They were severed from their families and communities. And by the time we get to Isaiah 61 here, people have started to come back to their city, but all they find is rubble and ruin. So we're talking economic grief. We're talking social and cultural grief, emotional and spiritual grief. These people feel forgotten by God, abandoned by God, unloved and neglected by God. And then we read Isaiah 61. And we learn that that pain and grief doesn't get the final word because God sends a prophet named Isaiah to these seemingly ruined people And through Isaiah, God promises that grief doesn't have the last word. God says he's sending a king to Israel and then through Israel to the entire world. And this king is described throughout Isaiah at different points. Four separate poems describe what this king is going to look like. And this is a king unlike any other king. This is a king that's described as a servant. A servant who will bring lasting justice, personally and corporately. A servant who will take upon himself the ruinous powers of death and sin and brokenness so that we wouldn't have to. A servant and a king who will rule by bringing God's kingdom of life and flourishing to all nations. And that servant here in this poem, it's the first person that starts to speak in the passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, the servant says. It's an allusion back to those other servant poems in Isaiah. And then he says, because the Lord has anointed me. It's a recognition that Uh, He has a unique role, a distinct role in being God's vehicle of flourishing and healing in the world. And the word we translate anoint there, it's the Hebrew word mashach, which shares the same root of the word that we translate into English as Messiah. So this is a Messiah servant king who will embody God's defiant love, breaking into the grief and pain and loss of our lives. That's the promise of God in Isaiah 61. See, friends, what Isaiah and truly the whole story of the Bible and history is always telling us is this. It is precisely into seasons of grief and pain and darkness that God's love starts to break in. That's how God always works, by stepping into the dark and bringing light. In fact, that's what this Advent season has been all about for us. Christians have always celebrated Advent in the darkest time of the year so that we could honestly look at the dark So we can honestly look at the pain and the grief that we carry with us, all the while keeping hopeful anticipation that light comes after darkness. 
that there is gain after loss, that there is crown after cross. And that approach, by the way, naming and facing and walking through the pain and grief with anticipatory hope, that's actually really unique when it comes to handling our suffering. See, in most of the world, we're taught not to walk straight into suffering, but to avoid it as much as possible. In Eastern modes of thinking, that's how most religious speak goes. The idea is that when you encounter pain and suffering and grief, you need to practice certain forms of enlightenment to rise above it. You need to detach because your pain and grief is really a result of an illusory or uh, improper or unhealthy world. You need to avoid that and rise above it. And then in our Western thinking, we're taught to avoid pain and grief through comfort. Right? If you're feeling bad, just take this drug or buy this thing or think positively or look on the bright side, good vibes only. We're taught to push pain and grief away from us as much as possible. And many times that leaks into our spiritual lives. We look for a quick fix. We look for one verse that will just make us feel nice or a song that makes us feel nice in a moment, makes us feel comfortable. But the truth is that in that sort of comfort culture, eventually when pain and grief inevitably come, we have no resources for dealing with it. So much of our culture lives with right now, a lack of resources for dealing with the inevitable hardship that we encounter. But the biblical response actually does none of those. It doesn't attempt to avoid pain and grief through religion or comfort. Instead, Christianity goes straight into the pain and grief we experience. And it names it with clarity. And then it proclaims that God will produce transformation in the midst of those things. And so the Christian is the sort of person who deals with pain and grief differently. They're not things we need to run away from. The things that we can enter into honestly because we know that it's precisely in those spaces that we can experience God's transforming power. And that, by the way, doesn't make them easy or desirable. They're not. Christians aren't masochists. But it does mean we can know that in the darkest of nights, light is always breaking through. And so we enter the night as different sorts of people with eyes and ears attuned to what God might be doing in those spaces. C.S. Lewis, I think, put it really well in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, pain insists on being attended to. You can't avoid it. You can't ignore it. You've got to attend to it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this, by the way, is always how it's worked. God's profound love has often come in and through grief and pain. It was into the grief and pain of a barren family that God's love called Abram to be a vehicle of peace and hope for the whole world. It was into the grief of pain and oppression and slavery that God's love brought liberation through an ordinary shepherd named Moses. It was into the grief and pain of a church that neglected the poor that God's love called an ordinary boy named Francis to rebuild the church. It was into the grief and pain of American and Christian racism that God's love called an ordinary minister named Martin Luther King Jr. towards the beginning of justice. You guys, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of history, the story of these faces in this room that I know, it's the story of God's love breaking in to our grief and pain and bringing life there. And Isaiah 61 is another in the long line of those examples, the sprawling, poetic proclamation of God's defiant love breaking in. And it also helps us get a clarifying definition of what love really looks like. We see four different things about God's defiant love and what true love looks like in a world of counterfeits. 
We see first that defiant love is the spirit of jubilee. It's the spirit of jubilee. And the start of this poem is actually recalling language that the audience would have already been familiar with, more than likely. The servant says this, he sent me to proclaim good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, and then proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, and then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those aren't new words. We've heard them before. Isaiah 61 is referring back to Leviticus 25. It's a hyperlink back to a ceremony called the year of Jubilee. The Messianic servant king is claiming that they have come to bring the Jubilee. And here's how the Jubilee works. Through his people, God set up a series of communal rhythms that would produce economic, social, and spiritual rest and justice and flourishing for all people. Rhythms that they would weave into every part of their lives. So one of those rhythms, it's one that many of us have heard of, Sabbath rhythm. It was a day of rest for the entire community once a week. But it wasn't just a day for like sitting around doing nothing. The whole point of the Sabbath was to ensure that people would not overwork themselves or overwork their neighbors or overwork the land. It was a way to ensure that peace and flourishing came through all things. And then it kept going. Beyond the Sabbath, the people every year would celebrate seven festivals. And all of those festivals were ways of remembering what God had done and embodying the rest from the tyranny of the oppressors that they had faced in their past. And then every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. And the people would stop their farming. They wouldn't farm for a whole year. They'd liberate any slaves that they had in their midst. And it was a way, again, to prevent unjust labor practices. It was a way to prevent abuse and unhealth in the community. And then every seventh seven year, that's every 49th for those that aren't great at multiplication tables like me, there's the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, which just sounds so good. In this year, if anyone had gone into debt, if anyone had lost their land, all was forgiven. All people were given a fresh start, no matter how bad things had gotten for them. Jubilee was a giant reset button on the whole of the culture. And the reason for all of these moments of rest, for Sabbath, for the Sabbath year, for the festivals, for the Jubilee, the reason given for all of them is that God has brought these people out of slavery to Egypt. Their Sabbaths and Jubilee were practices that resisted the tyranny of the power-hungry, slave-driving, productivity-oriented Egyptian culture, which had overworked and harmed them. Anyone else feel overworked? In this season, this pattern of rest in the Bible isn't just about feeling better themselves or about getting a nice little break. It's actually about creating a holistic way of being in them and their community that resists the dominant culture's abusive consumerism and objectification. That is a message we desperately need in this Christmas season. We need to resist the dominant ways that we are being pressed in by our culture, overworked by our culture told that we need to consume more and produce more in order to have life. This, is, this year of Jubilee is a way of bringing comprehensive healing. And actually, that comprehensive healing is in the language of this poem here. Do you notice all of the ways that this healing is going to come? It's good news for the poor and the oppressed. That's economic healing. No more about abusive power moves. No more unhealthy labor laws. Bind up the brokenhearted is something the servant's going to do. That's emotional healing. Grief and pain will be mended. Proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners. That's social healing. Those who felt crushed by the burdens of their societies would be freed. 
He says, strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. That's the notion that even those who are outsiders and others will stand with you and care for your things. This is ethnic healing. People who are othered are now brought together to seek flourishing alongside one another. And then finally, the year of the Lord's favor, spiritual healing. People will see and know the love of the Lord because of the way this community behaves. That's what the Messiah is bringing holistic, multifaceted flourishing for all people and all things. And I know for many of you, in your stories of the church, and your stories of religious experiences or communities that have claimed God's name, that hasn't been the sort of thing you've experienced. In fact, many times in our culture, uh, people will posit the notion that the church and God are inherently oppressive notions that are limiting us, and we need to cast those things off. But that's not the heart of God, friends, in this passage. Those bad expressions exist. We need to reckon with them and grieve them and lament them. If you've experienced those on behalf of the church, I'm sorry. But that's not the heart of God. God is telling us here that when he is at work, it will not look like legalistic oppression that presses in on you. It will look like chains breaking. It will look like the elevation of the poor and lowly. It will look like the tearing down of divisions. It will look like resets for those who need it. It will look like rest for those who are weary. It will look like the comforting of grief. It will look like spiritual healing in every way. Guys, the heart of God is tender, merciful, gracious, and it always has been. And so Isaiah 61 is showing us what true defiant love really looks like. It has a spirit of jubilee. It's a love that resets. It's a love that's proactive. It's a love that heals brokenness. It's a love that chases down the least, the last, the lost. And so whatever we want to say about love, it needs to start there. Love is never just a nice feeling. It is the will and act of extending oneself for the purpose of bringing spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. It's jubilee. And that also should prompt us to some important questions. Where might we need a jubilee? In our own lives, in our own culture. Where might we need a reset? Where can we turn to God in the middle of our pain and grief and ask for God's defiant love to show up there? That's always a great prayer, friends. Asking for God to be God. Asking for God to show up in the ways that he said he's going to show up. This is what he said his heart is going to do. Ask for God to show up. Ask for him to bring jubilee. So that's the first thing we see about defiant love. It's a spirit of jubilee. But we also see in this passage that defiant love is restorative. It brings back and rebuilds that which is lost. And we see it in verse 4. He says that the community who've experienced this defiant love, they shall rebuild the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, remember the people he's talking to. They are living in the midst of a ruined city. And that ruined city happened to them because they were generations deep in cycles of brokenness and sin and oppression. And so they're looking around them and they're seeing that they've inherited all this moral and spiritual and emotional corruption, ruin on all sides. And God's response is that all that ruin they've inherited and participated in will be rebuilt and repaired. This isn't just a one-off encounter with Jubilee. This is about disrupting toxic generational cycles of brokenness and pain and loss and bringing profound restoration from the scrap heap of our histories. This defiant love is reworking what has been ruined into something beautiful and good and whole. 
And friends, all we need to do is look around at our own lives, our own world, and we will see plenty of ruins just like they did. We'll see shame cycles that we've inherited that prevent us from ever really feeling truly loved. We'll see generational sin that we've adopted into our own patterns of behavior. We'll see harm done to us systemically, individually, that we carry like a bag of rocks on our shoulders. Maybe we'll just see persistent grief, grief that has carried with us year after year. Things have not gone the way we'd hoped. And in the middle of that rubble, in the middle of that ruin, it can feel like oftentimes there's no possibility for repair. Our world is characterized by brokenness. One in two people under the age of 30 report feeling persistent feelings of hopelessness in the world. We look around our lives and think there's no way this can get healed. The rubble cannot be repaired. Ruin has the final rule. And then we're often given examples of love that mirror this sort of hopelessness. We're given examples of love that will only stick around so long as there's not too much rubble or ruin. But when things get really hard, when that person changes, when the feelings in me aren't quite there, well, then I leave. Then I'm out. Then I change. That's what love often looks like in our world. But in this passage, God's defiant love proclaims something radically different. Ruin and rubble isn't something he turns away from. It's not something that causes him to leave. It's something that causes him to press even closer in. The ruin and the rubble is precisely where the love goes. He'll act more deeply in compassion. Ruin and rubble do not determine God's love. They are what draws love to deepen. That's what God is proclaiming, that his love will act and remain faithful. He's saying that even this situation, this hardship, this grief, it's not permanent. He will bring restoration. He's inviting people in the middle of their ruin to turn to him. That is the good news of these texts. That is the good news of the gospel, friends, that our greatest ruins become the sites of our fullest restorations. Ask people in this room who have followed God for years, they will give you story after story of their ruins being restored. Now, there's a great story I read in The Atlantic a while back that I think illustrates this perfectly. Uh, it's a story of an acclaimed jazz musician named Wynton Marsalis. Anybody know Wynton? Oh, nice. Yeah, a couple people have listened to Wynton. Nice. He was actually the first ever jazz composer to win the Pulitzer Prize in music. Uh, in the article in The Atlantic, it describes him this way. It says, he ruled the jazz universe enjoying virtually unqualified admiration as a musician and unsurpassed influence as the music's leading promoter and definer. Dude is a legend, right? But as often happens, his rise in popularity also led to a lot of detractors. A lot of art critics started to criticize his work, pick apart his work, and it lost a lot of his, its joy for him. And so in order to kind of re-spark the joy, he decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna dress up, I'm gonna disguise myself, and I'm just gonna start showing up to random jazz clubs in New York and play there play with a bunch of local artists just to get the jazz back in my bones. And so he started doing that. And naturally, the word got around pretty quickly that he was showing up to these jazz clubs. And so one day, this author of this Atlantic article showed up to a club that he knew Winton was going to be playing at. And he was killing it on this night. The magic was returning to his music. The people were dialed in. And then someone's freaking cell phone went off. The electronic beeps and whatever, and everyone got distracted, and the magic seemed lost. Drinks started clinking and people stopped paying attention. The Atlantic article author is staring at Winton saying, what's he going to do here with this? The magic was there and now it's lost. 
And Winton had every right to storm off the stage, but he didn't. Instead, he paused for a beat, he raised his eyebrows, and then he began to replay the ringtone through his trumpet. And then, after repeating it a couple times, he began to improvise off the tune, and the audience started to come back. They're like, wait, he's turning this into magic again. He kept going, and then he slowly and nearly imperceptibly changed keys and throttled down the tempo until eventually the ringtone had worked its way into the original song. The magic was back. Friends, that's the story of what God does in the midst of our ruins. He takes the heartbreaking interruption, the shameful narrative, the generational brokenness, and he weaves it into a new song. He plays it in our lives. And when we're willing to listen, when we're willing to attune our ears to what he is doing, we will find a richer melody being played through it, one that is constantly restoring our brokenness into beauty. That's what Paul meant in Romans 8 when he said that God is working all things together for good. It's not that all things are good. It's that God is making all of those broken things, all of those fractured and oh, inharmonious notes, he's making them into a beautiful song. And if we listen closely, we can begin to experience glimpses of that song, even now, in the midst of the darkness. There's a great theologian named Henry Nouwen who wrote beautifully about this in his book, Spiritual Formation. He said, we must mourn our losses. We cannot talk or act them away, but we can shed tears over them and allow ourselves to grieve deeply. To grieve is to allow our losses to tear apart feelings of security and safety and lead us to the painful truth of our brokenness. Our grief makes us experience the abyss of our own life in which nothing is settled, clear, or obvious, but everything is shifting and changing. But in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of all those ringtone interruptions, there is a strange, shocking, yet very surprising voice. It's the voice of the one who says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That's the unexpected news, that there is blessing hidden in our grief. Not those who comfort are blessed, but those who mourn. Somehow, in the midst of our tears, a gift is hidden. Somehow, in the midst of our mourning, the first steps of the dance take place. Somehow, the cries that well up from our losses belong to our songs of gratitude. Ashes into garlands, Isaiah 61 says. Mourning into gladness, faint spirits into rapturous praise. That's what defiant love does, friends. It restores. That's what God promises to do through his Messiah. Defiant love doesn't stop there. It keeps going. We also learn in this passage that it's a contagious gift. Notice how the messianic arrival transfers love to those who trust in him. In verse 6, it says, you shall be called priests of the Lord, and you shall be named ministers of our God. In other words, when this messianic love enters the world, it will be contagious. It will start to radically affect those around who have received it, and it will cause them to go out into the world and be vehicles of that sort of love, ministers and priests. This love for this Messiah is not, just to be, it's not intended to be just for them. It's not intended to be hoarded. It's something that should be deepen within us and then extend forth from our lives so that others might experience it as well. It's not a personalized, individualized love. It's a love that keeps going, it's contagious. And that flies in many ways right in the face of what we call spirituality in the 21st century. 
See, for most of us, our understanding of the spiritual life, of receiving God's love, is this very individual and private thing. We experience the love of God through personal little songs or devotions, little private examples of spirituality. And it oftentimes doesn't extend forth from our lives. There's an author named Kenneth Leach who writes about this in his book, Experiencing God. He says, since the 1960s, an epidemic of private religion has gripped parts of North America and Europe. The private religions offer a range of techniques and methodologies by which salvation and enlightenment may be acquired. The God they offer is a private God, a holy inward God. And the result is what Leach calls effective nihilism, which is a fancy philosophical term for saying that this doesn't actually matter in the world. That people will have a nice private thing in their own spiritual lives, but it doesn't make any meaningful difference on the streets around them. And he nailed it, friends. That's actually the primary way that many people experience Christians in the 21st century. People who have a nice little compartmentalized religion that's great for them, but whose lives don't extend forth with defiant love for all corners of the world. What Isaiah is reminding Judah and reminding us is that the people who receive this Messiah's defiant love will receive it in the depths of their being, but it will go so deeply into them. It will get ingrained so deeply in their bones that it will naturally pour forth into every part of their lives. It will radically change their careers, their family, their politics, their community work. Everything becomes informed by this sort of sacrificial, self-giving love. And when that happens, they'll become contagious people. And then, later on in verse 10, it's not just that this is contagious, it's also a gift. Notice what the uh, now author says. After the news of this messianic arrival, they say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Notice righteousness, salvation, it's coming from outside of him. Garments coming from outside of him. Robes coming from outside of him. It's something external, something beyond the author that is moving in his life. It's not something that Judah earned or manifested by their willpower. In fact, these people had tried for centuries to get life and love on their own and failed miserably. There's no moral or political or social or technological thing they could do. They needed the source of the defiant love to break into their lives, the external source to break into their lives. And what Isaiah is saying is that that has happened in the Messiah. The true, lasting love is gifted freely, a robe from outside of ourselves that we get to put on. Makes me think of that image of the prodigal arriving back. He's given a robe, not because of anything he's done, but freely because his father has named him beloved. Friends, whatever you've been told in your life about love, you need to know that true love is not something you earn. It's not something you work to obtain and maintain. It's not something you conjure from the depths of your being. True love is a gift from the one who loves. The messianic promise reminds us of that. And so our posture is simply one of acknowledging our need for love and receiving the robe of righteousness, receiving the gift of salvation. So defiant love, friends, it carries a spirit of jubilee. It's constantly restoring the brokenness of our lives. It's contagious. It involves us in the project of restoration. It's a gift, something freely given that we can only ever receive. But this story also doesn't just end with a promise that this is going to happen. We also find out the fourth thing is that this defiant love has been embodied. Fast forward a few centuries after Isaiah wrote these words, and we hear about a young rabbi. He was from a no-name town called Nazareth. And he was just beginning his ministry after working in obscurity for decades. And then his hometown, 
he starts his first sermon, and he opens up a scroll and reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And the eyes of everyone in the room looked to him. Eyes filled with grief. Eyes that knew pain. Eyes that knew centuries of oppression. And eyes that knew that this poem that he was quoting was about a Messiah that God was going to bring. And eyes waiting for the next words that came out of his mouth. And then he spoke one word to everyone. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, the defiant love of Isaiah 61 isn't only a promise, it's been embodied in Jesus. Jubilee has come in Christ. If you're brokenhearted, there is mending in Jesus. If you're burdened by the weight of worldly systems, there is good news in Jesus. If you feel captive to sin or brokenness, there is liberty in Jesus. And restoration has come. Whatever ruin you walk in now, whatever ruin keeps coming back in your life, whatever feels beyond repair, Christ's song is weaving it into beauty. Defiant love has come, friends, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is here in our midst. It is moving up and down these aisles, up and down these streets, and it is coming once and for all to make all things new, to make straight what is crooked, to restore we have a perpetual answer to Hathaway's question, what is love? And it's not just an idea. It's not just philosophical musing. It's a person that we can know and experience. And so may we today receive the gift of that love anew. May we get caught up in his redemptive, contagious restoration. Let's pray.